So uh, today we're going to have uh, Gerardo Paz Silva from Griffith University talking to us about um, noise in quantum computers and hopefully how to mitigate it. Uh, Gerardo, please take it away. Okay, uh, good morning and thank you very much, Chris, for having me. Um, so I guess my name is Gerardo. I know many of you guys here in Australia and I have been working on noise cancellation for a few years now. So I'm going to talk very briefly about what we have been done, what has been done in the field in the last few years and what we have done uh, in more recent times to overcome some of the limitations that the, um, let's say that the existing protocols for noise cancellation uh, had. So this has been really a team effort. Um, I mean, locally at Griffith, I work directly with my PhD student, who is Tirawat, and two postdocs that are Yuan Long and Beckham. And they will be involved in the results that, or they are involved in the results that I will be presenting today. And as well, uh, I also closely collaborate with Dr. Lee Norris and Professor Viola at Dartmouth College. Um, we are funded by an Osmeri grant via, from the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science that also, that has allowed me to collaborate strongly with Chris at UTS, with Andrea Morello at UNSW. And we have some other collaborations in the, across the ocean with um, some other US groups that are also interested in this problem of uh, characterizing noise and compensating for it. So um, taking, um, now let's, let's start with the science, I guess. So the standard picture that we have is the open quantum system scenario where you have a system or a qubit, it can be many qubits, it can be a qubit, and there is a bath. And of course your system interacts with your bath. And this is typically captured by some Hamiltonian that um, maybe the bath has its own dynamics. There's a system Hamiltonian and, um, and there is a system, and the system bath Hamiltonian that is the one in, in charge of coupling your system uh, to the bath, right? Um, there is also, you have the ability to control only your system um, by definition. You can also measure your system and you can do not much else. And of course, you can track the dynamics of your system by measuring expectation values of observables. And these are given by the standard, standard formulas from quantum mechanics. And as far as we are concerned, when we try to do, because our objective is to do, let's say a quantum computation or maybe some quantum sensing operation, what we really want to, to ensure is that we can execute a gate. And so what we want is that we want to generate or design a control such that in principle, we can, we can track or we can get the desired evolution of, of a given initial state or, or for any initial state in principle, right? And so what we want is that the expectation value of any observable that we have is actually very close to the one that would be generated if we were applying a very clean gate that we actually want to apply. Okay, so of course this is an old problem in the sense that this is basically at the heart of our ability to implement or hope to implement um, you know, quantum computers and all these things. And, and there are many approaches to it. So the dream of course is, is to have a protocol here in this, in, in this red dot where we have absolute, the absolute best quality, but we don't have to know anything about the bath or about the system or anything. Of course, this is just a dream because it cannot happen. And there have been several ways to try to overcome this, this sort of, uh, to get some good quality control, but maybe with only a few assumptions of the, on the bath or on the noise. So dynamical decoupling, for instance, is one strategy that really only assumes very small things, maybe that the, that the bath is sufficiently um, slow, and it applies a, se a sequence of unitary pulses. And the idea is that uh, if you apply your pulses or your, your control routine in a very, you know, in a particular recipe, then you can get high fidelities for your, not only for the waiting gate, but also even for, um, 
for a targeted gate. And so here I am I'm, I'm grouping things like the so-called dynamically corrected gates or composite pulses, which have been, uh, have been around now for, for a few years. On the other hand, we have optimal control. So optimal control is, demands more knowledge um, of your system, of your noise or your you know, system and bus, but can get uh, better, um, better fidelities. So basically it takes assume some knowledge from, from the bus, as I was saying, and then identify certain um, cost function and it minimizes or optimizes your control in order to, um, to get the, the to, to minimize, let's say, maximize the fidelity of certain operations. Of course, the issue is that some of these, um, of the assumptions that are needed for optimal control are actually only, can only be assumed in the sense that they cannot be measured directly. So things, for instance, like trying to say that my, the state of my bath is a thermal state with a fixed temperature or a given temperature. And maybe that I know that my bath Hamiltonian is has a particular shape or a particular mathematical form, or even that the system bath, the system bath uh, operators, the system bath Hamiltonian is described by certain bath operators. Then these are things that I cannot really um, directly measure if I only have access to my system, right? Which is kind of the, which is kind of a key part of the, the whole open quantum system paradigm. Of course, you can say that, um, that certain things can be, we know our systems, our physical systems relatively well, and maybe we can know part of this information, but by the very definition of an open quantum system, it's not really possible to know everything about the bath, right? So there will be always some degree of freedom that is acting there that we cannot really characterize, right? Or even touch, right? On the other hand, there are certain, um, that the key question is of course, if there are optimal control protocols that can use uh, experimentally accessible information. And this is what we want to be, right? So we want to be in a situation where we can use our system to characterize certain relevant information about our noise or whatever is described in our quantum system in such a way that we can actually use the optimal control tools to get our very high fidelity gates. And so I will hopefully convince you that later on that uh, this type of information comes in the form of bath correlators. And in particular, a certain subset of the, of the possible uh, bath correlators. And so um, this will be really the, our strategy, right? Our strategy will be to characterize uh, the noise that is affecting our system by using only measurements and control over the system. And this is key, right? Because you can imagine that in the typical scenario that we have, right? We are implying your control here in green and the noise is of course sending some, uh, some other mixed signals. And our qubit is really confused at the beginning of the story. And so we want to say, well, given this situation, given this situation, what can we do? What, what sort of signals can we apply for the green speaker? And what measurements can we apply? Can we, can we execute? in such a way that we can get some characterization of the noise. The hope of course, is that once we have this characterization of the noise, which I will uh, hopefully specify in a few slides, uh, we can then optimize our control in such way that effectively the qubit starts feeling only a very small component or a very, let's say a weakened version of the actual noise. And of course we can get in that, that, in that way, we can get um, better, um, better fidelity, let's say for our gates. Okay, so this would be, this is, I guess, the general philosophy that one wants to apply. Uh, of course, this is nothing. Uh, this is nothing new in the sense that you can even hit, uh, use. I mean, noise cancelling headphones work around this, this principle, right? And this may be as old as Sun Tzu's, uh, Sun Tzu's uh, nose diagram, right? Um, in in quantum mechanics, or in, at least for quantum control, we have not been the first to um, to propose it. Of course, the, the story, has, the, the idea has been around for many years, and it has been indeed the the um, 
the, let's say the, the essence of many of quantum many of the existing optimal control or quantum control routines the the key point or the, the, the key step i guess that we want to take is to actually then to is this part right? is to be able to build a full set where we can eventually characterize or get a full characterization of the noise which is relevant to the control and uses only system uh, system only um, operations like measurements and gates okay so that being said, we have to go into the math to actually understand what is it that we mean by characterizing the noise and optimizing and so on. Okay, so let's do the typical thing. So the first thing that we want to do is separate the effect of the control from the effect of the noise. And so the typical thing we do in these open quantum systems in which is we go into the Tobin frame with respect to the control. And so we essentially separate our unitary, your system bath unitary, which is the one that is executing all our system and bath dynamics in the open quantum system. We separate it into one interact one that depends only on the interaction Hamiltonian that I use UI in red, and we have the, the element of that of the control. And this Hamiltonian will be your working horse, right? It has some key features. Then the effect of the control is captured by these switching, um, let's say, switching functions or control matrix elements, if you, depending on which paper you read. Uh, but the important thing is that here, the, these time-dependent functions contain all the information that there is about your control. Whatever, you, whatever control you choose, there will be some transformation or some there is a, a particular form or shape for this y a b of t. On the other hand, this b b of t can be thought either maybe it's a classical noise process, or you can think of some really of, a, of, a, of an stochastic process, maybe if there is no uh, quantum bath, or you cannot, if there is a quantum bath, on the other hand, you can think of it as the interaction picture of the uh, representation of the bath operator with respect to the bath uh, dynamics, okay? So the important thing here is, this, is to identify these two elements, right? Switching functions and bath operators that are possibly time dependent. And of course, once we do that, then we can say, okay, what is the effect of doing this? And what is the effect on our equations of the things that we can measure? And the effect of, the, of any expectation value is then, is then um, that we can write our expectation value in this way. So there are two things that we identify immediately here, right? The first one that I'm highlighting here is this, this operator VO of T. So this operator is very special because it's the one that if this operator was not here, for instance, right, it was identity, you can immediately say that this guy, the rows of T, could be just be the, the execution of some gate, would be the ideal execution of the gate at that, right? And so it becomes clear that VO is actually what contains all the effect of the noise. It's all, whatever the, the um, is where all the band, the bath operators are appearing actually. And so if we wanted to do, for instance, a noiseless, a noiseless implementation of some gate G, what we would like to, uh, to, uh, to, um, to implement is a control such that the VO of T is as close to identity as possible and that the rows of T transforms according to the gate, our gate that I want to execute, right? And that is really um, what, we, what we want, right? Uh, at heart, right? Get a gate that is good enough. And so, this also implies that we have to understand VO a bit more in a bit more detail. So if we expand it in some either a Dyson or cumulant expansion or whatever you want, um, whatever you are more comfortable with, um, but what you realize is that really this VO of T operator, which we can call a propagator if you want, um, is really a, 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 some combination, right, of these uh, of a variety of uh, integrals or time order integrals of this form which really, uh, which are of different M, so they are time order of different, uh, and let's say of M con uh, concatenated integrals or ordered integrals, integrants, sorry. And you see that again, the two elements that were, appear, were appearing before appear now uh, here prominently. So we have 
the effect of the control, which is captured again by these products of now of the switching functions or the control matrix elements. And we have the correlation functions now of, uh, up to our order, an order M, right? And so this is formal at, at this point. With this, this is just a way of, you can, you can always show that you can write it, uh, um, your dynamics in this way. More importantly, is that you realize that when M, that, uh, especially for M, when M is larger than three, and you are looking now about a, a three, three body correlators or, or the three in your, in your whatever perturbative expansion you choose, uh, you realize that importantly, not all the orderings of the times will affect the dynamics of the qubit. And this is something that you can formally show if you, if you write your you know, higher order terms and whatnot. And what really appears is, and this is what I'm highlighting this L here, which is just to say that I only have linear combinations of certain permutations of the time argument. And so this is the first, the first um, let's say the first observation or the first thing I want to highlight is that my qubit is not capable of seeing the full bath in the sense that it only, first of all, it only cares about the bath correlations. It doesn't care about um, the bath state. It doesn't care about, I mean, clearly, it's in, so that bath state is clearly entering here, this bath correlator but it doesn't care about exactly about the bath state or the bath operators or even the bath Hamiltonian. It only cares about the bath correlations that they can generate. And that is the first observation. The second observation is that the qubit cannot see all of these bath correlations. It only sees certain linear combinations of them. Perhaps the most um, well-known model that we can, uh, that is perhaps more familiar for everyone, is the case when you have um, you know, a defacing qubit with, and you're applying maybe some pi pulses to it. And here, then you would say, well, it's a defacing Hamiltonian. So you have the, the typical set operator, and then you have some bath operator, um, which, which can be, um, maybe it can be, a, can be either a stochastic process or maybe a quantum operator itself. If you were to compute, let's say, the expectation value of X, of operator sigma X, uh, you would see that this thing is just, um, is, is, a, is a factor that is an exponential factor that represents the decay of the, of the coherences and times the exponential, right, uh, the expectation value, sorry, of the uh, same operator, sigma x, at time zero. And this element here in the exponential has, again, is this is what represents our VO, essentially. It represents, or when I mean, it's a real manipulation of the VO, but the important thing is that it captures, again, the type of integral that we have been referring to. So there is some order, some uh, time order integral, right, where you have the switching function, this y of t, twice, right, because it's a, it's a, here, it's assumed that it's a Gaussian process for simplicity, right? And of course, you have here the correlation functions. And you see that what we have access to here in this case is just access to the commutator of the correlation, anti-commutator, sorry, of the correlation functions. And you see that indeed, this is a, basically captures this observation that not all combinations appear, and let's say free appear for, and or affect the qubit. And this is to say that if you perhaps are more familiar with this nice model, is, uh, is to say that a qubit under pi pulses or under pi pulse control that generates this sort of interaction picture Hamiltonian cannot see the quantum features of the bath if it's, or of the noise if it's, let's say if the bath is a noise is Gaussian, which is the case, for instance, if you have a, you know, a bosonic environment with, with a thermal state, okay? So hopefully this, this sort of transmits the idea that characterizing the noise for us is really know, being able to know what, what are these uh, linear combinations of bath operators and or expectation values or correlate bath correlators uh, for different times and, and so on, right? So if we had this information, then we can do many things, right? So if we are interested, let's say, in control and decoherence suppression, then what we would like to know is to if we can know the signals or enough about the, the, the you know this linear combination of bath correlators, we could in principle think of ah okay, let me minimize the values of these integrals 
and as the previous case of the defacing showed, then we can get, for instance, um, um, like very low um, low decoherence, for instance, if we could minimize the i, right? So then the smaller the, the value of the integral in the exponential in, in the previous slide right here, the smaller this value is, right? The, it means that the more suppressed my decoherence is, right? And so uh, this is one, one, one of the possibilities, right? And this will, of course, lead to better gates, which is something that we always want. And on the other hand, we can do other things. We can use this information about this correlation function to extract uh, or to learn physical properties about the bath. We can do, for instance, bath thermometry. If you have, um, um, if you have, let's say, a thermal state for some bosonic environment, you can do thermometry. And we have done this, uh, well, we and other people have done this in recent years at least theoretically, and some people also experimentally. Uh, and you can do in, in generally any parameter sensing that is rela relevant to the bath, right? If you have some model for your bath that is described by some physical parameters, by knowing these correlation functions, you can start to distribute part or infer some of this uh, information, okay? However, our focus for this talk is this one. Our interest in, the, in uh, our interest is actually just control and decoherence suppression. And so um, this, this, of course, um, what, what, what has, this has led to is to the, the, this need to characterize these correlation functions. What has led is to the birth of these quantum noise spectroscopy protocols. And in a way, quantum noise spectroscopy is just, is really just this, right? You are trying to characterize these correlation functions. And in some very, let's say in some hand wavy way, you can think about this as a time resolved tomography of the open quantum system dynamics. If you have this information, you can do the things, the great things that we can do, we, we mentioned before. But of course, uh, the important thing is how to do it, right? So it seems that it's a natural question, um, but how can we actually do it? So these protocols tend to be just, um, if you read the papers, you realize um, that this is really, is a recipe that gives you a set of initial states, some set of unitary controls that you can apply, and some set of measurements. If you combine all of them, you get some, some sort of tensor product structure, then you can get a lot of a bunch of expectation values for each of these combinations of initial state, control, and observable. And the idea is that if you have some, you can design some classical processing routine, uh, then it is in principle possible to infer this, um, but the information about the, you know, the linear, about the bath correlation, or the linear, this linear combination of bath correlations that we, we, we actually seek. And so the key question, however, is how to do this. And, what the main obstacle is say, well, given this recipe, right, of giving access to these integrals that we were uh, having before, which once you understand a bit these protocols, you realize that in reality, that all this point of in injecting different initial states and measuring different observables are really just a way of isolating all the different integrals that contribute to the dynamics. So, and so the problem, once, is, once you strip it out of the quantum, the mechanics, it is actually a problem of, it's a classical estimation process. Uh, procedure, right? You want to, uh, given access to these eyes, and given your ability to change or manipulate these switching functions that depend on your control, right? Then um, the, the question is, what can you infer about this correlation function, right? And this is the whole point of the of the of this type of protocols. And so the key to achieving this, right, more in, in terms of the mathematics, is the so-called filter function formalism. And so it's really a way of rewriting our integrals in such a way that they become friendlier. So for instance, if we had an integral of this type, which is like a, the typical sort of second order integral that we, uh, that we would have, where there are, the, again, the two switching functions and the, and the correlation function, I can move into the frequency domain and 
do a Fourier transform, and let's imagine here that the noise is stationary. And so if I move into the frequency domain, what I have is that this, this is just a, the power spectrum of this associated to the correlation function, just a Fourier transform of this correlation function. And when I rewrite my integral, then I have this object here that is this double integral involving the switching functions and, um, and of course the exponential factor. And this is what is known, or what we call the filter function. This was pioneered by Kuriski and we generalized it later to, like to, um, to a more general decoherence or, or for a general decoherence um, scenario. And the thing is that these, these objects have two important, or a lot of information in general, not only for this integral, but in general, of course, a model, like an arbitrary model, you can imagine that it has a collection of many of these integrals, right, that you have to analyze. And, but then, but the, the structure is always the same. A filter function, maybe of a higher order, and a correlation or the Fourier transform of some correlation function, which can be a multi-body correlation function. In this case, I'll just show them for the one for um, the second order correlation function. But you can imagine that the structure just, um, you know, keeps going and going in, in principle for any of your, um, of your perturbative, any term in your perturbative expansion, let's say. And so there are two, this, this, um, this overlap integral has a very nice structure. And it actually is, is very convenient to understand for understanding uh, two things. The first one is that you can understand what is the coherence suppression relatively well here, as, at least as far as unitary control goes. Uh, for instance, um, you, can, and, um, you can show that clearly minimizing the coherence is just minimizing these integrals. And because you have this sort of overlap structure, then you realize that really minimizing the integral, minimizing the integral is just a method of minimizing the overlap between your filter, which is something that you can control in principle with, you know, by controlling your pulses, and the spectrum of the noise. And you realize also that dynamic, the traditional, the well-known dynamical decoupling sequences are just sequences whose filter functions are very flat around the, the omega equals zero regime. And so they have a very small overlap with noise that is, um, that is heavy, let's say, or, or concent spectrally concentrated uh, around the, the zero frequency regime. On the other hand, you can flip the problem around Then you can say, ah, okay, so I can also do learn, try to learn about the, no the noise, right? So can, you can imagine, for instance, that in instead of having this green filter, which is the, in this case, the, the, the filter from the, one of the well-known CDD1 sequences, which is basically the Haneko sequence, um, you realize that um, in principle, if I could move this green, generate different filters, right? move this green, um, this green peak, I could move it to the left or to the right, I could start getting really a lot of information about specifically about this overlap between my spectrum here in blue and all of these filters, right? So I do an experiment and get information about the, the, the noise here, change my control, do an experiment, get information about it here, and so on. So you can imagine that okay, in this dream scenario, if I could move this filter for to left and right, I could essentially reconstruct my spectrum in very high detail, right? And well, this, I mean, this can be maybe achieved in certain super ideal scenarios or certain very specific scenarios. It's really not so, not easy as it, as it looks, right? In general, so your filters, because of the constraints, the constraints in, the, in the equations and in the control, actually look, you know, maybe not as nice as these ones. And you cannot maybe move it as, as to the left or right as you would like, but they actually more, look more like the red line. There may be variations of this red line. And, and this is because, of course, the constraint that your controls and your, um, and your equations um, yield. Moreover, when you have multiple, you, can, you have your, your model starts becoming more realistic. Maybe you have multiple axes. Um, you have not only you know, ga uh, you know, Gaussian noise, but I mean non-Gaussian noise. 
then you have to deal with many, many more complications. You have now multiple of these integrals that you have to do analyze simultaneously. Um, you have multiple dimensions. You have to deal with linear combinations of filters of look like this. So things become, let's say, murky, right? And the problem essentially is not is not easy, and then you have to really analyze this. You you know go into a very deep analysis or very detailed analysis to be able to extract the information that you want. And so indeed, this has been the objective of many papers that have been uh, that have been um, have appeared over the recent years, that essentially try to generalize this sort of simple observation that I was just mentioning below or before uh, into more general, increasing more general models. Right. So we go from um, from the simple defacing model that we have to much more general things. And so now we have, for instance, that we can reconstruct a spectrum uh, for, you know, for an arbitrary noise, uh, sorry, Gaussian noise, for instance. Then you can do when your noise is not Gaussian, you can also reconstruct these sort of things. When you have multiple axes, then you have multiple spectra, and then you can still reconstruct all of them in the right regime. And even if you have, let's say, something like a noise that is like um, uh, something like a a random telegraph noise, you can still reconstruct the, uh, let's say, the, the Troy spectrum, which is the, three, the third order correlation function of, for, this, um, for this process, for instance. And so these are all things that have been done. And sure, one seems, when it seems like if you just keep working hard and harder and harder, then you will get there, right? And you eventually get, you know, increasing more powerful protocols. And sure, that seems to work, right? However, um, to be honest, the, 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 true, the truth of the matter is that um, the, you would like is really a, a full general protocol, right, which is capable of addressing multiple qubits, uh, noise in all directions, non-stationary noise, non-Gaussian noise, quantum or classical noise, uh, you know, arbitrary, that you deal with arbitrary control, include, include be able of uh, including uh, control errors, for instance, in your, in your model. And th this would be the dream, right? But the truth is that we are far from that. So all these protocols have maybe improved a bit in, in, in all of these directions, right? In all of these, let's say, criteria. But the reality is that we are far from the, from the final objective, which is the sort of all-powerful, let's say, assumption-free or, let's say, maybe less assumptions as possible, um, quantum noise spectroscopy protocol. So this is not to say that the current protocols that have been there are, have been not uh, successful. Indeed, you can see that these have been, one of, many of these, uh, these um, um, of these protocols have been tested and experimentally verified by multiple uh, experimental groups around the world. Um, so the group of Andrea Morello, and the group of Mike Bierchot, um, the group of uh, William Oliver, many, many, many times supported by Lorenzo Viola's group in the theory side, they have achieved this sort of, um, demonstrated all of these protocols. Unfortunately, many, mostly they have been verified when you have injected noise. So that is to say, they generate some artificial noise, they throw it into the, you know, they apply it to the qubit, and they apply it simultaneously in the spectroscopy protocol, and they verify that indeed they are getting something like the, the injected noise, right? However, none of these protocols has closed the loop in the, so, in the sense that what they have not done is say, let's just take the noise that is native to the system, you know, characterize it. I mean, maybe that, that step has been done, maybe in the, in this Nature Nano paper, and more recently, actually, in a spectroscopy paper by uh, by Morello, by the uh, spectroscopy characterization that the Morello group did on the qubit, um, they can characterize uh, um, the spectrum. However, what has not been done is the next step, which is okay. Let me use that information to optimize uh, maybe a gate or maybe a waiting time. 
Um, perhaps the best uh, example of what can be achieved, and maybe it's, it's a bit of a hint of the power of this sort of approach to the problem, is this paper, which I was very happy about, uh, in, in, I think it was last year. And so here what they did is that they, they, by different techniques, they were able to characterize, and also by previous knowledge, they were able to characterize what is the noise, the dominant noise in their, in their, um, their ion trap. And so once they identify this, they say, okay, my spectrum, their spectrum had, let's say, a minimum at a given frequency. And so what they did is they said, well, let's increase our, our coherence then. And how do we do it? Well, they chose a sequence that had a filter which was only had a peak around the point where the spectrum was minimum, was minimal, where they had this, where the spectrum has this dip. And in that way, they achieved this amazing coherence then. So this is a bit of the, of the, of a flavor, I guess, of the motivation to why these sort of protocols can be super useful, of course. And, um, and so maybe uh, hopefully this is some, you know, some food for thought for an experimentalist when they try to, or want to improve their gates uh, in the future. Of course, um, so you, the, as, as I was saying, the, I mean, our, our objective, which is getting to this sort of super general protocol, right, is still, this is still not there. And so last year we were thinking about it and said, well, we sort of have a way forward in the sense that we can just keep working, keep doing detailed analysis. And, you know, eventually you see that you will get there, right, with a lot of work. And in principle, things can be done. However, to be honest, I was a bit uh, sad because it seems that, you know, this was like this very detailed manual work of analyzing the problem. There, there was a bit of a, there was something missing, in my opinion, at least, that could push us beyond this, this um, you know, the, what the, the current aesthetic. And um, the main issue, of course, is that when you have given the, con you have a given control setup, right? Maybe you have instantaneous pulses, or you have, you know, your pulses have a, some Gaussian profile or some Slepian profile, you name it. And given the mathematical constraints that are given from quantum mechanics, then deconvolving these integrals is not a non, it's not a trivial issue. And, and of course, when, when Mary, in a, in a sketchy way or in a sort of cartoonish way, what you have is that you have some expectation values, you have some control with, well, which you have used to use your, uh, to implement your QNS protocol. And you can, this gives you a characterization, right, of, um, of your noise, which is, sub, which is uh, constrained by the control that you have available. And then you push it in the other direction. You say, well, clearly, if I have this, given this characterization, if I can apply again something, a control that looks like the one that I used for my QNS, then I will predict some expectation value. And clearly, what you, I mean, because you're essentially using the same control, the same type of control, then you, you know, the, the, your predictions will match what you measure. And this is great, right? The problem, however, and this is, I guess, not only a problem from the theory, but also at the experimental side, as, as I guess is behind the, the, the main reasons why this sort of closed loop, this loop has not been closed, is that when your control is not the one you used for spectroscopy, then things are not so clear, right? Because in principle, right, your noise is, has a full characterization, you know, all your bad correlators. And if you knew all of this, Right. If you apply and you apply and you, you put your you know your field, your switching functions correspond to an arbitrary control that you applied, you will get some value, right, or some expectation value. On the other hand, if you do the same operation with the one that you have obtained, the, the characterization that you have obtained via the, your QNS control, then you you would say, you would see that the expectation value that you predict is not guaranteed to be the one that um, that the actual experiment sees. And the reason is that 
there, there is, this is of course constrained, this is limited information, it's not all that the qubit can see, for example, if you have certain very strong constraints, let's say, on the controller. And so, in order to ensure that these two things match, then you have to start saying, okay, I have to start adding extra assumptions. And so one of the things that you can, that happens, for instance, in the so-called frequency comb spectroscopy protocols is that you have to start to assume, for instance, that your uh, spectrum is smooth, for instance, and that it's pretty smooth, that there is no, um, for instance, there is no hidden peak and, and so on. And so, and that is, for instance, that it has some um, unknown, for instance, um, um, high frequency cutoff. And, and all of these assumptions actually add to the complexity, some, add to the complexity or the success, let's say, or the applicability of your protocol. And this is not a situation that we like, right? We would like to really overcome this. We would, we would like to have a situation where we can actually predict that the information that we can access with the spectroscopy is good enough for us to just use that to predict, right? And so the key observation is this, right? So we were thinking about this and we thought, okay, what if we, we introduce the control into the problem from the very start? So in within the malformalism, we introduced the control constraints directly from the start. So initially we were not doing that because of course the mathematics becomes more complicated and you have to start making some, um, you know, say, oh, my, my, my protocol would apply only for this type of control if I do the analysis in one or the other way. But maybe that was the key, right? Maybe that is the key. What if I just put my constraint from the beginning and then try to analyze the problem with the constraint in place? And so, the, the key observation is that if you have any constraint control, let's say whatever your, you know, the type of uh, waveforms that your digitizers can give or, you know, any con experimental constraint that you can think of, then it actually, is a it actually uh, implies that your, the type of switching functions or control matrix elements that you have, have certain structure. So each of these guys has a structure and the task then becomes, okay, so if they have this structure, then you quickly realize by looking at the equations that in reality, if we wanted to predict the, the behavior of the qubit, we only really need the, to need the, uh, to learn what are the components of the noise that are relevant to those to that structure. Of course, this is all in quotation, mark, in quotation marks at this point because this is sort of the intuition, but it's perhaps not so clear how one can do that, right? And so the task is to, you know, provide the mathematics that will allow us to identify this structure. And then, uh, and the, the key, the key thing is to well, we just really need to choose the appropriate an appropriate representation for a given control. And this is really the essence of it. And what we are going to, what I'm going to argue in this in the next coming slide is well, how do we choose the structure, and what is the correct language in which we can do this? What are the key, there are some key ingredients, but at the end of the day, what we are going to tell you, what I'm going to hopefully tell you is that, given a control, if you choose your appropriate representation, there is a lot, to, there is a lot to win. Perhaps. Uh, and there will, of course, be some, some sorcery here, but it will eventually we'll get to the result, okay? So maybe, maybe give you a bit of more of an intuition of why this, this could be that way, right? So imagine that you have this, this, this uh, situation where your control is band limited. For some reason, um, the type of controls that you have is such that, um, that the filters are always band limited in the sense that they become zero after a uh, given big omega, right? Uh, some let's say cutoff frequency and you have you and all you need for your dynamics is this integral here right so what you quickly realize is that if you have this sort of structure if all the filters that you can generate are always band limited then the spectrum here outside could be whatever you want and because the overlap will always be extremely small right then um, 
it really doesn't matter what it is outside of this region, right here or here, right? And so in the end, what you truly need to know is only, uh, or the, the dominant piece of information that you need is actually the spectrum in the region of interest that is in this sort of, um, between these two lines, two dotted lines, okay? So in, in this is of course uh, what is known in, in signal theory as, or um, in signal processing theory as a Slepian sequences. And this has been exploited for, let's say, also for QNS, uh, for quantum noise spectroscopy in, in Lorenza Viola and Lorenza Viola's group at Dartmouth, and also by Mike Pierchuk's group at, at the University of Sydney. And so, but here, the, 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 the key thing of this, is, and this, is a, a, this was a very accelerated work in signal processing, this Slepian um, structure, is that the, frequent, the Slepians were built in a way in such that their filter function representation or their representation in frequency domain was band limited. Okay, so they, so these are, they're slipping, they're special as far as the frequency domain is concerned. Okay, so you can start thinking, okay, so that's good, but my control doesn't have to be that way. So my control can have many ways, many shapes. Right? It can be maybe it's instantaneous pulses, and maybe it's just some, you know, some arbitrary pulse profile that can be, I don't know, a Gaussian or, a, or some other shape that I want, right? And so maybe what we can what we can do is invert the direction of the arrow. Why did instead of instead of doing what Slepian did, which was find the control sequence such that it was well represented in the frequency domain, what if we found the space or, or the representation in which the control that we have is actually well represented? And this is the kind of this is the switch in, in the way of thinking that we want to apply and hopefully exploit in the next coming um, coming slides. Okay. So in order to do this, to be able to achieve this, we will need to do three key ingredients. So the first one is that we need a flexible language to do this. So instead of having the Fourier transform as our key ingredient, which is what was used in the, in the let's say, in the, in the standard frequency domain formalism, we would like to do something more. We would like to be, just be, find a space, in this case, these phi alphas, which are um, some arbitrary space for representation to represent the function y of t. So a neat way of doing it is that the so-called uh, frames, which are nothing else but you know a generalized over complete basis, if you want, they they obey some um, you know some they are defined via some mathematical uh, equation, and they are great. They have been um, they are extremely important in signal processing theory. They have some um, very very cool robustness properties. They have they have been used also in tomography in quantum, in quantum tomography, and um, well, and they are great, great mathematically. They are extremely powerful, and they are very, uh, very friendly and, and very intuitive to work with. The important thing, however, of this language is that it provides a way of uniquely writing any function in terms of these frames. And of course, there is this some other thing that is some other mathematical object that is called a dual frame, which they and the key point, of course, is that you can always write this um, the y of t represented in terms of a frame and its dual. And the important thing is that these coefficients are unique. So this, of course, this implies is that this guy here is unique as well. And so this will be, this is component one. Basically we need, we have learned how to express any function in some arbitrary space. And of course we have complete freedom choosing a frame. And this is part where the, this is one of the key elements for, for what we will do. So we can, choose, we can learn how to expand any function into some arbitrary space that we can build. Okay, so this is item one. And the reason why we, why we use frames is basically because they are um, at heart QNS is a signal process estimation problem. And, uh, and of course, we, are, we want to eventually down the line, explain, uh, exploit many of the properties that frames 
and bring along. The second component is a change of point of view in how we write our equations. So in the frequency domain, as we were saying a few slides ago, we write our time integrals into this frequency domain uh, integrals where we have this again, this overlap. And we have that all the, uh, this was just a Fourier transform, right, of the correlation function, for instance. And this was simply, um, you know, the time order integration, right, where we had of, of the switching of the switching functions, y of t and y prime of t prime. Okay. And so that was great. I mean, we knew how we, we used that very well, etc. But when I started thinking, okay, so really what we want is to, to really have, to have the most flexibility in what we can control. So what if we, instead of putting all the time dependence that we, that we have in, term, in, the, in the filter, what if we could just put it here in the object that contains the information about the correlation functions? And let's call this as alpha of alpha prime. So this is just a rewriting of the equations where we have used this relationship, right? We have assumed that each of the switching functions that we have can be written in, some, in the frame. And of course, here we have just rewritten that equation, right? The important thing here, or the, the, why this is important, is that now you can start demanding things on the control. And this is, of course, very natural because that control is what you can actually, you know, even though I'm using the same word, it's what you can actually control. And so in the previous, in a previous point of view, right, we, we were starting to, we, or I mean, we were for the spectroscopy protocols, right, we were demanding things on the representation in frequency domain of the correlation function. But of course, a demand of something that you cannot control is an assumption. And then if, if it's not satisfied, then the whole thing fails, breaks down. However, when we moved into this language, we say, well, this object here is something that we want to estimate, but I don't want to infer to uh, assume anything about it. So everything, every assumption that I want to put in place, I want to put here on the control, right? On the, the on, on what signal I can put into my, my, you know, my signal generator, etc. And so this is this is the second element, right? We are writing things in such a way that all the assumptions will now go here, and this is where the flexibility lies. Of course, there will be more of them, of these unknown parameters s alpha alpha prime that we'll have to deal with. Um, but it doesn't matter, right? Because our objective is not to understand what the correlation function is, is to understand what is the elements of the bus or what is the relevant information about the bus that influences our dynamics. Our dynamics. And this would be the, this is the key. Of course, up to this point, we have just changed our language and that's it, right? We still have, if you remember, many of the issues that came from the frequency domain estimation of the spectrum is that we have an infinite integral and our objective was to infer S of omega by trying to somehow deconvolve these integrals, right? So when we change the language here, we really, so even though there is a bit of a slight change of point of view, the mathematics is still equally problematic, right? It's still, a, if we wanted to estimate this guy, it's still a deconvolution in, in principle of, of an infinite, of an infinite integral, right? Which is not even, so it's formally, doesn't have to be even discrete, et cetera, right? So the problem is still there, right? However, now we have the ability to demand things on this expansion, right? And so what, what if we demanded that it was finally supported in some frame? And so this is what, what we, the third ingredient. Imagine that you could build a frame for that, that you can associate to given some control, right? And you can build a frame such that each of the, of the switching functions are just compactly supported up to some very small error. So what this is telling me is that I can write, I can, so my switching function, any switching function that my control can generate is, on, I only need, is, only, uh, is um, expanded by only a finite set of frames, right? In this case, N sharp. 
and this guy, this finite set of parameters describes all the possible controls that I can apply. So if I know these parameters, in this case, and sharp of them, I can completely describe what control, what is the control, right? And the trick is to, to choose my, 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 um, my frame in such way that this, that this error is small, okay? And this, is the, this would be um, the third ingredient, right? Building the frame that matches your control. If this can be done, then let's see what happens. Well, the main thing is that now I can rewrite my integral, but with the key, de key difference is that now the summation, which was an infinite summation before, right, now becomes naturally finite. And this is a very this, this is in the same uh, in the same uh, vein of what happened when we had the Slepian example, right, where the integral over frequency was basically um, reduced to uh, to uh, the integral over some uh, region of space. And this is exactly what we have achieved now here, but in the space of in the correct frame, right? If the frame can be built, then in the correct frame, this integral takes this very simple form. So there are two, two main conditions here, two, two main uh, consequences here. The first consequence is that it tells us that this S alpha alpha prime or uh, elements that are the representation in, the, in this frame, that, or the, sorry, the representation of the noise in this frame are all that we can know. About the, about the system, about the noise. So, so basically this says, well, if your control capabilities are those, all that you can know are this, this finite set of, of, um, of uh, S operate or S alpha alpha elements, right? And in principle, if you sample or a sufficiently large set of, of filters, right, which is just, uh, if you recall, it's just uh, a different set of control sequences generated from the same control that you assume you start with, right? then you can, in principle, sample all of these guys, right? Or at least, uh, the, yeah, so you can sample all of these guys. On the other hand, if you look at the optimal control problem, then this equation tells you that this same S alpha alpha prime for alpha alpha prime at two N sharp is all you need to know in order to predict the dynamics and do optimal control. Because there is really, if you have a control, but it's saying all the information that is important is this, right? And there is nothing else because your control is now being represented in a, let's say, in an efficient way or in a compact way in some sense. And so optimal control is not just a matter of, of optimizing over my choices of controls, which are picked from the, again, from the control assumptions that we start from. And so what we have achieved then is that we have leveled the ground or we have put, um, we have made the optimal control in the QNS protocol, the control center QNS protocol equivalent in some sense or the dual to one another directly, right? And so what we have now truly achieved, achieved right, is that first of all, the, the problem is finite in the sense that if you choose your frame, then it has N sharp of these elements, then you only have to worry for each integral of some, or in this case for the order two integral, for instance, you would need to worry of N sharp square of them, right? Elements of pieces of information. And so this is a finite problem, this is element one. The second one is that now we have now, when we apply uh, either so the full characterization of the system, which is the one that is the ideal one where we, which we cannot access, right, uh, with, the, with the constraint control, and the one in the characterization of the noise associated to the control that you can have, they both give the same prediction, in, which is actually the real prediction, even if you apply the control that you have for, QN, for the QNS protocol or an arbitrary control within the same family, right? So, the, the key point was that when we input, when we input, right, the, the control constraint or, the, or we input the information about the control, which is done through the frame, right, 
um, in the problem from the beginning, now all of the problems or the, all of the let's say, uncertainties that we had before and when we were trying to force some control to extract information in the frequency domain, right, uh, all of those problems disappear because we are already in, a, in the constraint limit, in the constraint setup. And it's exactly that kind of the type of information that you need to predict your dynamics uh, when you have this uh, constraint control setup. Okay, and this is, I guess, the, the key of the philosophy, right? Achieving this, uh, this result in the, in the blue box. So this is, let's say, this logical step in the blue box. Okay, so let me now illustrate to, to finalize, I guess, uh, or almost. Uh, let me illustrate this by, um, by two examples. The first one is the case of instantaneous control. And so in here, what I can do, what I have is imagine that I have a total time from zero to T, right? And between multiples of, and I can apply any instantaneous pulse that I want at a multiple of some fundamental time or some um, switching time tau. And so tau, T1 is tau, T2 is two tau and so on, right? And the question is, of course, how do we apply this thing, right? So the first thing that we identify is that to, we have to is study the structure, right, of the switching function. And we realize that the switching functions are, are just, um, you know, piecewise constant functions that take, uh, can take values within the integral uh, minus one to one, right? And they, you know, given your choice, then each of these y of these looks like this. So this sort of puts, um, this sort of guides you and you say, well, given this, then I may as well use a digital basis. So I can use the Walsh basis, so, but you can, here for our purposes, we use the Walsh basis for historical reason, basically, because what we are essentially generalizing some work um, when you, I mean, we will show that essentially what we do, right, in, in, the exam, in this small example, is to generalize uh, um, a, a protocol that was introduced by Capellaro and Alex Cooper some years ago to reconstruct uh, time-dependent signals in the Walsh domain, or when you had a, um, using a QUIT as a proof. What we're going to show, or what this example shows, is that basically by just changing your point of view and everything, you can extend this protocol to an arbitrary uh, space, uh, to, to an arbitrary correlator, not just, let's say, the signal or the mean of a signal, but also, um, let's say, all the two or the three and three-body and four-body correlators, et cetera. Anyway, so we're going to use the watch for, for our protocols, or this is what we use in, in our numerics, um, because just because, just because these historical reasons, but you could have also used the hard basis or an impulse basis if you wanted, and the result would be the same. So it's just a matter of a language at this point, okay? And the idea, of, the, the idea is that you can then, um, you can show that of course any of these functions can be then expanded in the, in the Walsh uh, basis, which is, is a frame, but of course, when the frame, is a, when the frame in question is also a basis, then it becomes self-dual, so you only have, um, you can just show that you can ex uh, expand it in this way, given some appropriately defined inner product. And if you do, the, we do our dynamics and we, we test it, let's say for a defacing model, or the, kind of in the same uh, vein that I um, illustrated in the, in the beginning, where we know our equations and are very simple, right? Um, then we recognize that, of course, the expectation value of any observable is just a function of two type of, um, of correlator functions. The, the one that is depends only on the, um, on the anti-commutator and one that depends on the commutator, right? And so let's call these quantities represented in Walsh as S plus and S minus and N prime, okay? So one can show that if you implement a protocol for a spectroscopy where you essentially measure the X, Y, or Z and prepare in any of the Pauli eigenstates, and then you apply sequences of pi, y, pi pulses and pi by two pulses in the Y direction, 
then you can extract all these quantities, this S plus N, N N prime and F minus N, N prime. And I, what I won't go into the details of what exactly uh, of sequences that you have to choose and you, can, you will be able to find them in, in our paper later on. Um, the idea is that you can reconstruct things. And so in particular, I want to point out, this is, this is for instance, an example that we did where um, you have essentially a, um, a random walk process, right? Where your correlation beta here, where your correlation function um, is a minimum over t and t of t and uh, you know the two coordinates, so it's clearly a non-stationary process. And then we have modulated again the given uh, initial modulation by some uh, oscillatory function. And the idea is that the left-hand side here it shows the correlation function as it would be in theory, right? And the right-hand side is what happens when you have your total time and you have divided into sixteen intervals. So you, you see that the, the information is clearly not complete, right? And so the left-hand side can be expanded into a full, um, you know, an infinite expansion of our watch functions. However, the one that we recover is actually just expansion over the first 16 of them, right? Without control. The important thing is that as far as the control, if we are only allowed to apply sequences of pulses or pulses at these fixed times that we were mentioning, right? Then they are equivalent. And this is the key part, right? This, is a, this sort of tra transmits the, the information that we were trying to, or the point that I was trying to make before, that if my control is constrained, I, can I only need to reconstruct what is relevant to that control, and that is all, right? And so, and the frame has simply allowed us to formalize this statement and you know, be able to use some clear relationships to, to distill this information. Of course, this is not to say that we, are only that we can only use this for, for estimating or to improve or predict gates, right? We can actually still, even, even though we cannot access or we will not be able to access the full correlation um, functions in time domain, we can still do uh, extract physical parameters about the batch. So this is a cute example where you have, um, you know, two oscillators coupled to some quantum system in a defacing model, let's say, and each of them is, is a typical, you know, um, the time independent Hamiltonian is a typical element, right, of a, of a bosonic environment or let's say an oscillator, um, um, oscillator system, right? And then they, you can assume that they're in some thermal state. And what you can show is that you can reconstruct a corresponding uh, correlation function as well using just a probe as a qubit. In this case, of course, you're interested in the, in the minus or in the, in the commutator of the, of the bath operators, which are the ones and also and that, that, that are perhaps have the quantum nature of the bath itself. And so when you combine the quantum and the classical, the, the symmetric and anti-symmetric part, you realize that you can actually use that information that you reconstruct, even though you're reconstructing it in the Walsh dimension, in the Walsh uh, frame, sorry, then you can still use it to estimate physical parameters. In this case, you could estimate, for instance, the coupling, the natural frequency of each of the oscillators, and even the temperature of the oscillators, but just using the single probe. So this is just to say that uh, even though we are working in a different space, the information that we access is still good enough to, to learn about physical parameters of the path. Okay? So, and clearly, of course, the more resources to, you invest, the more, um, the better estimation of the parameters, but this is perhaps a mirror of a, of a, of a side note at this point. Okay? So the important thing is that we can now characterize non-stationary noise, for instance. This is something that also that is non-show here is that we can actually extract, extend the protocols that we have to multi-axis, non-Gaussian noise, thing, and this can be done simultaneously, which is something that we, had, we, had, were not be able, we were not able to do in the frequency domain. The final thing that I want to show you guys is the ability to do non-instantaneous control or spectroscopy using non-instantaneous control which is one of the main questions that I had whenever I was presenting uh, spectroscopy a few years ago using this instantaneous control. 
So imagine that you have in your policies are now just Gaussians, right? And you apply a certain point, right? And the idea is that you can, you, again, we can do the same, right? I try to identify the structure of the control. You realize that all the switching functions are linear combinations of cosine and sine of this form, right? Um, and so instead of having a given frame, as we had in the previous case, we have to build our own. And this is where the frame, um, so the frame um, format is becomes very handy because we have all the frame, um, you know, the frame mathematics, we can build our own frame and we are guaranteed that it has all these nice properties. And this is what we do, right? And this is just to, to give you a bit of a, of a flavor of what we can do, right? And the, the key thing is that when we build this artificial frame that we have, what we have is indeed, we still get the finite element, but we have now a diver that we were mentioning at the beginning, right? And this error, depending on what frame you choose, can be made also very small, as we were saying before, right? And so we can show, for instance, that if I, in this, if I choose three angles here, zero pi by two and pi as my elements of my frame, then I can get a very small error of 10 to the minus three for n is equal to three, um, you know, 10 to the minus four, if I choose two more angles randomly there, well, not randomly, but with some structure. And the, the, the main point is that as if I increase the size of my frame of the elements of the same my angles in this case, right, eventually I will reach a point, or I mean, in the, in the ultimate case where I pick all the angles, then of course the error is zero, right? Because my frame is exactly in this, is my basis itself, right? Or my frame itself. So there is no, um, I mean, there is no error, right? Uh, but the point, the point that I want to transmit here is that you can actually build your frame to be more and more accurate if you want, right? Of course, this is just, this is just implies that when you are going to use your experiment to characterize this, you will need more resources to extract all these elements. But in principle, the, 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 uh, the algorithm is flexible in that, in that aspect, okay? And so we can do again uh, the same, there is some protocol to do the, the spectroscopy to, do a, to characterize these, um, these, um, the noise in this frame and the details are really not important. It's just that you're using maybe the same elements of your frame to do the, the same angles for your frame, but also a couple of extra ones to get more information. And the point being is that you can extract the relevant information, this, the correct representation of the, of the, of the noise in this, in this basis or in this frame and what we gain is that we can now predict the dynamics as well. And uh, the, the price you pay for not having an accurate representation is just some, um, some relatively small value or like close to one value, sorry. That depends on how good your frame is, right? The better the frame, the closer these guys to one. So some other things that I have not shown here, but also can be included is that you can do, you can add control noise and you can study also control noise and also within this frame formalism. Uh, what you can do is analyze the problem where you have not these sort of simple Gaussians that are not overlapping, but you have to just some arbitrary control uh, profile that is just a, a mixture, or let's say a, a combination of non-overlapping -over uh, control profiles, right? And you can, and at heart, really, this is the, so this sort of idea of taking, um, of, of learning with respect to a certain control is really behind the idea of, or behind the success, in my opinion, of this, of this work that we had with Akram and Chris uh, a couple of months ago, where we showed how machine learning can be used to actually predict the dynamics. In reality, when, we, when I talked to Chris initially about this project, I was having this in mind exactly. And so I said, well, it has to work because if I can do it on paper, the computer has to be able to learn it as well, right? And so this, I just want to point out these papers. It's, um, it's a great read if you want. At least maybe I'm a bit biased, but I can be able to do this. And finally, just to summarize, um, this is just to, to share that hopefully you guys have, um, have enjoyed this, but I just want to share our, our bit of a, our adventure into this noise cancellation. 
and just to and basically is how a change of language, a change of a change of point of view, and the riches of this mathematical formalism, with uh, which is this frame, right, with the control, is enough to guarantee great things. In particular, this sort of noise cancellation uh, that we were seeking. And please look forward to this to our paper that should come hopefully be in the archive in the next week or so. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. And if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to um, to answer. Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Gerardo. Uh, um, uh, if anyone has any questions, um, just un just unmute yourself and um, and ask away. Um, while you're doing that, I can confirm Akram's paper is an excellent read. Thrilling. Um, uh, Harada, I wanted to ask you, um, so I think it seems like there's a very sort of natural progression in this field of, of relaxing assumptions and, and um, dealing with more and more complicated or complex, you might say, sources of noise. Um, and, and then you showed some experimental results that I guess the point was to, to try to implement some of the protocols which characterize this noise. Um, and those kind of, I guess, le naturally leg behind the theory. Uh, and then I'm wondering, is there like another level where, um, you know, there's experiments that aren't specifically about characterizing noise, but you know, necessarily characterize noise because they want to achieve something else um, to you know, some, something else in quantum technology, for example. Do you know like what level the, those sorts of results are at? Like in the labs where, or in the companies where we're building devices, um, uh, what sort of noise characterization mitigation protocols are being used? Um, so, so I would say that, um, so at the, at the very physical layer, I guess, before you go into the, um, say, high level operations, I would say that dynamical decoupling is the most used, um, let's say, the coherence mitigation tool. And it's used at the base level. So you just apply a gate where if you're going to wait, you apply dynamical decoupling sequence or maybe you apply one of these evol evolutions, which are dynamically corrected gates, or you know something along these lines. Uh, and these are great because they require low information about the bath, uh, but they're uh, and they did improve your um, your gate fidelities, right? Not to the extent that maybe an optimal control routine could use could improve it, right? Um, so as far as I know. The experiment in which this has been done with most success is the one, the nature photonics one, one I, I pointed to is the one that where they characterize the spectrum and they actually achieve this very long coherence time by just parking their filter where the spectrum was minimum, had a, had a minimum. And this is how they got this 10 minute uh, uh, coherence time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, but as also as, as I mentioned, I guess, there is there has been no experiment that I'm aware of that characterizes the actual noise and then um, and then you know gets a gate improves a gate using that, that information. 
I know that in Andrea's group, for instance, what they did is that they characterized the spectrum, right? And they saw that there was a bump at some frequency. And what they could identify is that when they go to the, they went and you know analyzed their physical setup, the actual cables and connections and whatnot, they realized that this frequency was matching some some line that was exactly the working frequency of some line that that was going into their cryostat or something like that. And so, and they they even showed that if they had a better, so they they could attenuate this this noise, they could see and then they could rerun let's say the spectroscopy. They say they saw that indeed the, the the bump or the height of the bump could be reduced by physical methods, right? By just you know this than one that is noisy, then it attenuated in some clever way not, that I'm not going to pretend to know. But um, and so they showed indeed that the bump could be reduced just by just knowing what it is. So that would be not like an active way of controlling, but actually knowing you know identify what the physical source and dealing with it directly, right? But the, the dream of implementing this thing in a you know the full cycle of characterized and optimized. I don't think that has been uh, has been done yet in an experiment. Right. Thanks. Are there any other questions? So um, uh, thanks for this nice talk. Uh, let me ask you a, a very annoying question. Yeah. Um, so at the moment you're. You have in mind that you you have your qubit, let's say, and you apply a lot of different control pulses, and you learn more and more about the spectrum um, given those constrained pulses. Then you feed this information of the spectrum in some, let's say, classical optimizer that finds you a good control pulse to fight the noise. So I think that's that's nice. And um, I guess the the question is why don't we just cut out the spectral uh, information um, and, the, and the classical optimization. And if we already have to apply lots of control pulses in the lab, um, why don't we just um, adaptively or in a learning control way um, learn a good pulse without ever learning any effective models of the bath, but we just know that the pulse that we found worked. Uh, yeah, no, so I mean, yeah, so I, I guess like undoubtedly, right? There is like, um, there will be a set of pulses that you have to apply to characterize the system, right? Even if you do it our way, which is the one of, of extracting spectral information, or if you were just doing, you know, your experiment directly, right? So you, let's say there are N pulses that you have to apply, right? And you could do the same, right? To, to you apply N pulses to get, let's say a particularly good gate and in your experiment directly without even ever asking about what is the spectrum. The question is, of course, that once, you're, once you know what your spectrum is, then you can just by classical processing design what is the perfect or the, let's say the optimal one that generates any gate that you can have, right? So this is, I guess, my first, um, the, the, the first layer, I guess, of my, my reply. Uh, the second one is that it is true also that you don't have to even ever ask yourself what is the spectrum, even if your objective is to, uh, you know, to characterize the noise in some sense, right? Because, and this, I guess, what we did with Chris and, and Akram is that you throw the pulses into the, you know, in this case, a simulated dynamics, but, and then you have just a neural network that learns about it, but you don't never, you never ask it, what is that, what they learn, what it learns, right? It just learned. And then there is an, optimi an optimal routine that when you say, well, I want to execute this pulse, it will use that knowledge and it will, it will speed out what is the control that executes that knowledge, that, that, that gate. Right. 
And so I guess there are these two two levels uh, that um, of my. I mean, sure, the the spectrum is really it's just for us to plot things in some sense. Uh, but on the other hand, doing the characterization beforehand is much more flexible than just optimizing every time you are going to do a gate. Right. I mean, I, I guess my answer to the first point would be that in practice, maybe it suffices to find two good gates for quantum computing, right? You don't need to, to do arbitrary gates. You just need a universal gate sets. But um, I, I agree with the second point. And maybe if you can learn something about the spectrum, you can kind of transfer this knowledge also. For example, if you have several qubits and you learn something about the, the spectral functions of one of them, uh, and then you want to do some, some similar optimization for the next qubit, maybe it's reasonable to assume that it, it experiences a similar bath. And so maybe uh, you can do it more efficiently. But it would be nice to have a kind of cost comparison between the two schemes to see in which case one wins and in which case the other. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yes, I, I mean, it's something that we can do in the future for sure. Thanks. Thank you. All right, great. Well, I, I think we can end it there. Um, so uh, thanks everyone for joining. Uh, thank you, uh, Gerardo, for the talk. And we'll see you around when the border opens up. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.